Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Creative Live, the world's best online classroom for creative professionals, with classes on songwriting, engineering, mixing, and mastering. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is also brought to you by Savior Custom Drums, quality crafted drums handmade in Denver, Colorado. And now your hosts, Joey Sturges, Joel Wanasek, and Al Levy. Hello. Good afternoon. Howdy. So on today's show, we're going to be talking about some vocals. I've recorded a lot of vocals. I'm sure you guys have too. Yeah, and it's funny. I was thinking about the vocal recording process, about how I've gotten vocals that are so horribly recorded that I didn't know what I could do with it. And there's been some times that I can magically make it work in a mix and other times where things are just completely non-salvageable. And no matter what I do, I just feel like it ends up sounding like total shit. And I think that there's a few environmental factors that make it non-salvageable. So I just wanted to bring that up first, that what room a person records the vocals in has everything to do with whether or not the vocals will end up being mixable. Do you guys agree or disagree? Are you talking about the famous window vocal reverb? <laughs> that is exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> the vocal booth actually not being good for vocals. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Not. I don't mean that they need to be in a professionally treated environment or in some top vocal studio. But I mean, you know, you get vocals that sound like they were in the corner of two windows or recording vocals in the bathroom, <laughs> yet they're screaming vocals and it's supposed to be mixed up front, you know, front and center, like a good lead vocal. And it's just like, you can't really do anything about removing the room from it. So I think that at least in my opinion, the first step towards getting really good vocals is making sure that the environment you record in is straight. Meaning, I have one trick for that. Yeah. Isotope RX3, I think they just came out with four now. They have a D reverb plugin that <laughs> is pretty good. Um, sometimes it needs, I don't know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But when it works, it really works. And it's very good at sampling a vocal and removing unwanted reverb and getting a much clearer picture. I was not aware of this. You should try it, mister. I know every plugin that's ever been made in the history of plugins. Yeah, but you want to know which plugins I'm not that familiar with? Or Isotope plugins. So thank you. RX3 is amazing software. I think that's by far the best restoration, noise removal. It just, it does things that will make you sit back in your chair and go, wow, Okay, so, that just happened. Well, then I take back everything I said. Vocals should always be recorded in the bathroom. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> you can uh, just use that plugin. RX3, to fix it. that's it. Yeah, shit. Why did I, why have I been setting up little vocal forts this whole time? Because uh, yeah, I'll, I'll set up like walls and walls of panels and then put... Uh, panels above the head of the vocalist and make sure that literally no extra sound can bounce around in there and that the only sound happening is the vocal going into the microphone. But if I had only known, think about the hours I could have saved. <laughs> well, I record vocals in the control room because I like to be in the same room as the vocalist and I kind of like to be able to like turn my head and look at them and, and like tell them different things to do and kind of just totally. have a better, like, you know, just a better working zone for lack of better words. But, but what I use to help me get a good vocal sound in the control room is something called a portable vocal booth. It's not one of those rooms that you see. I think you can, you can buy like a portable vocal booth room, but it's, it's not quite that it's made by real traps. Um, you can check it out at realtraps.com slash p underscore pvb dot htm uh portable vocal booth it's like this uh 90 degree angle wedge that attaches to your microphone stand and it stops reflections from getting into the microphone you know what else works great a mic stand and a blanket yeah but i've tried the whole blanket thing and it always i don't know it's hard to get it to do exactly like it always falls down or people bump into it and it's just, 
a pain in the ass. <laughs> what kind of mic stands are you using? <laughs> well, that that portable vocal booth sounds like a great idea. I used to own the ones that Aurelex made, which were just the small ones, right? No, they were pretty tall. They were like six foot tall foam walls with a little window in it for you to be able to to talk to, like make eye contact <laughs> with the vocalist. Oh, but right. What, what I do is. I will put like eight foot tall gobos on either side of the vocalist and then put high frequency traps above the vocalist. But basically, it seems to me like your method does exactly what mine does, but you just snap it on a microphone stand, right? Yeah, well, there's there's the popular one that I think a lot of people probably bought at Guitar Center. It's really small, and I think it's made by... A different company. I can't remember what company. The SE reflection filter. What's that? Right? SE yeah, reflection yeah. filter. I used to sell that thing back I in the day. I don't think those are good because they sound kind of boxy to me. The one that I'm talking about is made by Real Traps. It doesn't have any, it doesn't change the sound at all other than removing the reflections. It's really good. I'm a tent maker myself. I have all these traps laying around my studio and I just uh, stack them up on top of an amp or whatever and build a massive evil fort. I guess the point is that even though the three of us are doing different things to minimize the amount of room reflections in the vocal mic, the point is that the three of us are doing things to minimize room reflections in the vocal mic. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the that think that's the moral of the story. From now on, we only record vocals in the bathroom. Yeah, uh, RX three contest in Omni. <laughs> so, what do you do when our like say you get a say you get a vocal from a band you didn't record it? It was recorded in a situation where there's a ton of flutter and just weird reverbs and all that. So your first choice is go for RX3. And say that doesn't work. Well, that's a... Uh, to have them cut it again. Start EQing and compressing and reverbing and uh, just try a bunch of different things. I mean, every vocal that I've ever had like that, and fortunately, I can usually count on maybe two hands the amount of times I've had it in a mix where somebody sent me a vocal like that. But when it happens, you're like, holy shit. I mean, it's it's a pretty scary thing to attack. So usually I just start trying everything and trying to find ways to hide it. Like I'll add additional reverb to it or delay or something like that to kind of make it sound like the ambience that was already there is part of a bigger ambience so you don't notice it as much, if that makes sense. It, it's like a reverse masking, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I like what Joey said, though, which is just get them to recut it if possible. Yeah. Well, obviously, definitely that's a much better place to start if you have the luxury of doing it. Yeah, exactly. Not all, not always possible. So now what about choosing a vocal microphone? How, how do you guys go about doing that? What I've done in the past is just bought different microphones that I thought looked good to try. And then I actually try them on a couple different people and just decide if I like the mic or not. I ended up getting an AT3030 first and then I tried that out and I liked it. I was recording vocals for a while when I first started out in my career in a garage. So there was a room. It was like the drum room, but also where the vocalist would do vocals. And it had a pretty bad ambience problem, which I'd never really noticed until I got into a really good listening environment because the ambience that would come through the mic wasn't very apparent in the listening position. But anyway, I liked the AT3030, so then I moved up to the AT3035 and then eventually went up to the AT4040. In the, somewhere in there, I got an SM7B, and I tried that out for a while. And I, I liked it at first, but the more and more I got into modern production and, and having my mixes be really polished, it took a lot of work to get the SM7B to, to actually fit into that world. So I'll second that. I tend to use the AT4040 now pretty much on everything. And it's a good overall microphone, then, it sounds like. I've never used one. Yeah, it's 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 surprising to me because it's only like a I'm pretty sure it's only a four hundred dollar microphone, 
And I know that the U87, like the Newman, is very popular. A lot of people use it. That's my favorite. Every time I've used the U87, I've had too many EQ problems, like really weird, like notch frequencies that I just can't get rid of. That's interesting because I have the opposite experience with mine. I think that the U87 is a great mic, but I think that it needs to be matched to an appropriate voice. And I think that that's where noobs get into trouble when, as related to ch- choosing an expensive microphone, because uh, I've definitely experienced lots of guys who want to try the expensive microphone. They want to go for like the classic thing that costs three grand or whatever that they've read about so many times, but maybe their vocalist is more nasally in nature or shrilly sounding in nature. And then you put one of those super expensive condensers like a U87 on it, and you're going to hear that nasal-like quality of the voice just become even more nasal and annoying. Uh, So I've always thought that it sounds great if you match it to the right kind of voice. And sometimes you don't want that amount of detail coming through with some vocalists. There's something about good dynamics, I feel, sometimes that hide just the right stuff about a vocalist that you need. But yeah, that's an interesting take on it because I kind of have the opposite experience. Like, that's why I like the U87 is because for, I guess it depends which pre you pair it with. For me, it's a 1073. That's why my favorite pre to put a U87 with. But what I do like about that mic is it, I feel like it almost always works and it's not overly hyped like a lot of condensers. So because it's kind of got a decent mid range to it, what ends up happening is I can throw it up on almost every singer and it's never going to completely be like, man, that doesn't sound good at all. I mean, it's very rarely that I throw it up that I don't like it or I don't think it doesn't sound great. So um, that's interesting. You guys had the opposite experience with it. Yeah, I've had the experience of the U87 sounding phenomenal with the right kind of vocalist, but I've also had it sound totally shrilly. And just because it's so detailed, it's such a great mic. The reason that I don't like it for everything has nothing to do with the mic not being as good. It's actually too good. So I think that if you're recording a Dell, you know, or some angel, that kind of microphone works great. But I've had very, very limited success trying high, a uh, high dollar condenser on, say, some deathcore vocalist who's really not that good, <laughs> who has, you know, minimal breath control and really needs to be pieced together. I, I find that high dollar condensers may not be best for that kind of thing. Yeah, I think another thing you run into with popular microphones like that is there's a potential of getting a Chinese one where they do a, a knockoff and it's not quite the same quality level as the as the real deal. And if you're bargain shopping online and you're trying to get stuff off of eBay and other sites like that, you can very well run into a Chinese knockoff and, and not really know what an actual U87 sounds like. And I kind of feel like maybe that's what I ran into and didn't know because I borrowed it from someone and I have no idea where they got it. Well, you're free to use mine anytime you want. <laughs> Hell yeah. I, I love cutting screams through a U87. Um, I like the detail and the fidelity. And for me, it's an issue of clarity in the mix. Like I feel like I use a lot less EQ when I'm using an 87 versus like a 7B or um, any other, you know, a 57 or a 414. Um, that's definitely, to me, what I like about it is actually that it's so pristine and clean sounding. And then when I get in and aggressively compress it and EQ it, it, for me, it seems to work in a mix situation a lot better. I've definitely experienced that just not every time. I think my favorite thing to do is just put up a bunch of microphones and have the singer try to sing into each one. And oh yeah, I do that figure, every time. Yeah, yeah, figure out which micro. Yeah, at the end of the day, it really, what really matters is which microphone pairs up to the voice the best. Um, and it's it's not a one size fits all type decision. But I definitely do think that like your AT forty forty or an SM seven B or for you a U eighty seven. I do think it's important to have like 
your go-to vocal mic that will work for you 85% of the time. And also have a few options for those outliers or, you know, those guys who just don't sound good with that particular microphone. It's good to have some options. Um, I've had some really interesting stuff happen where, for instance, I'd have a really, really amazing vocalist in that I expected to use the U87 with or some really expensive microphone we rented. And after testing nine microphones going with an RE20, because we liked the way that it enhanced the low end of his voice and provided an overall punch. It just, it just sounded the best for him. And it was a total surprise. So I think it's good to, it's good to know what your go-to is, but I think it's also good to have the ability to just check different things with a vocalist because you never know what is going to be the right match in advance. Hey, how do you guys feel about tracking with compression as opposed to doing it in post? I don't I like it. to track with compression. Um, I know a lot of people do. And one of my one of my notes on my mixing guide says, don't send me vocals that have been compressed because I like to choose how much compression I want to use. And I'm sometimes I'm automating how much compression is happening throughout the song. And that's not something you're really going to sit there and do. I mean, some guys do it. I've seen some dudes just ride the knob while they're tracking, uh, change the uh, I do that. threshold. Yeah, I tend to do it. I'm more in the box. I'm not an outboard gear guy. So I like to just have everything uncompressed so that I can do it in the box. And I'll try different scenarios of different ratios and different thresholds throughout the song and I'll ha- I might have it really aggressive and then I might try like really not aggressive and just kind of do a car test on both. And that's not something you can really do with the outboard gear. So I generally will end up setting up multiple distressors, for instance, and have them set for different types of things that the guy does. Like one will be for cleans and the other will be for screams. I might even get a third one going for something else. And dial it in to a good general spot for each particular sound. And then I'll still ride it from there throughout the song to make sure that the, the gain reduction stays the same and that it's, you know, that it's working. But I definitely think that if using outboard compressors on vocals that you do need to be paying attention the whole time with your ears and eyes on the gain reduction meters uh, to make sure that different vocals aren't, you know, different level of vocal or different style of vocal aren't having an undesired, uh, undesirable effect uh, through the compressor. Does that make sense? You can get into yeah. a lot of trouble with compressing in. I like to do it, but I don't like to use attack and release time compressors when I'm tracking vocals. For example, my favorite um, vocal tracking compressor is an optograph or an opto compressor. I use a Shadow Hills, um, which would be like the optograph equivalent, but I've got the mastering compressor. And I love it because it's two knobs in and out. And what it does is it allows you to sit there, work a threshold or a range of reduction that is going to be acceptable to you and levels off your vocals. But the attack and release times are very forgiving. So you're never going to screw it up and you're never going to be like, man, I wish I would have changed the release because this part feels weird or it's too poppy or it mitigates a lot of those problems. So I kind of like to go into that because of the tone sweetening effect and it gives the vocal a nice little organic distortion and kind of like a halo around it in the mix position. But it definitely helps control some of the dynamics and level out the performance. So I guess the moral of the story is that if you are going to use it, just be careful to not get yourself into a situation that you can't get out of later on. Um, So like what you're saying, Joel, is that you do like a little bit of compression, but not so much that it really alters too much of the sonic quality of the vocals going in. I should also note that I hate getting vocals that are pre-compressed when I'm mixing. That absolutely drives me nuts. I, being the mixer, I want to have the control of being able to compress the vocals because sometimes they over-compress them and bring up too many of the breaths, for example, or any other possible array of problems that could happen. So I'm kind of with Joey on that one too, where when I'm tracking my own stuff, I always compress in, but I'm also mixing it. So 
Yeah, I was going to say, if yeah. you're doing all, all parts of the process, it doesn't matter. But if, if other people are involved, then be considerate and, or at least ask them like, hey, do you care if I compress on the way in? Yeah. I've had people email <laughs> me that. Yes, exactly. Totally on board. <laughs> I just have a funny story about that one, um, because I, I'm with you guys on this, that if I'm getting tracks from somebody else, it's a big bummer if they've compressed it, because usually they did a bad job. I recorded a band once, and I guess before I recorded this band, I mixed something for them. And one of them was friends with a guy that works for Will Putney. And I guess that they somehow through the grapevine heard of some compression saturation outboard trick that Will uses on vocals. And so they thought that that was just the thing to do when recording vocals. So these tracks that they sent me were just square wave distorted. And they recorded in a bathroom too, but through <laughs> this crazy, yeah, square wave distorted, compressed to all hell and back vocals recorded in a bathroom because they heard that that's how Will Putney did it. I talked to Will about it and his response was, oh dear. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I agree with you guys. If I'm getting tracks from somebody else, unless if it's like, one of you guys or something like, you know, someone awesome, I'd prefer there to be no compression on the vocals. But yeah, if I'm doing it myself, then, you know, I'll go to town because I, I know I know what the end goal is anyways. So what about your tracking procedure? Because I know there's a couple different ways to do it that seem to be effective. I've tried a lot of different things. I prefer to have it where I do the vocal takes and then immediately afterwards I'm editing the vocal take but that doesn't work for everyone because what I've found is you can destroy someone's energy level or their mojo or whatever you want to call it when every time they do something they have to sit there and wait for you to, to edit it real simple so, get faster it's <laughs> the only way yeah you know as fast as you can go but sometimes it, it does take a lot of care to get the edit right and I've I've tried to hire a lot of different vocal editors and never really liked anybody's edits because they don't take the time that I take to really make sure it sounds exactly you know how it should. I'm with you on that one. But do you guys have any interesting techniques or or are you doing similar methods of tracking the vocals? Okay, well here's the thing. I'm with you on this that you got to be paying attention to the vocalist the whole time because. It's, there's these guys where they lose their mojo. It, that's it for the day, and so you don't want you don't want to be the reason that they lost their mojo. Right. But in an ideal world, I prefer to edit while tracking. You know, get the take, edit the take, move on. The one thing though that I will insist on is that if we're doing doubles and triples and quads and all that, I like to be at the very least time aligning them on the spot. And I use Revoice Pro for that. But, you know, maybe pitch editing will do after the fact, but I want to at least make sure that, it, you know, and especially with screams, if we're getting layer upon layer upon layer, I w want to be getting the time alignment right on right then and there. Yeah. Nothing on earth pisses me off more than untime aligned layered screaming. I just want to put it's that out awful. there. awful. <laughs> awful. So bad. Because when you're mixing, you get a session. Sorry for the off tangent, but I kind of feel like this is an important point. Sometimes when we're mixing, like somebody will send you a large session and you'll have four to eight layers of vocals going on and all these screams and all every single one will end at a different time and they'll start and the P's and the S's will be at different times. And it just sounds like shit when it's all compressed and slammed together like it's supposed to be. Yeah. And that absolutely drives me up a wall. So I'm kind of with you. Like I, I generally loosely time edit where it's all tight and really good. And then I go back with a fine comb after we've kind of gotten through the song and we're like, okay, and then I'll pitch correct. Cause then the vocalist can take that home that night and they can listen to it and they can be like, you know, I really hate how I sung this line. Can we do it? And then you can kind of nip it in the ass right away. And you're not sitting there four months from now and being like, Hey, uh, dude, I really don't like how I sung that verse. Can I redo it? And you're like, Oh yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> 
Yeah, I know what you mean. Normally, what I'll do is when we get the first vocal, I'll I'll basically quantize it with like Elastic Audio or whatever right away, and then actually use Revoice Pro on the doubles to match those to the original. That's perfect. I've gotten pretty quick at it though, so I think that's that's pretty much my process. Is you know, spit the vocal if we like to take, correct it, then double it, and then revoice pro it, in you know, into being perfectly in time with the original, and then on and on and on and on. But I don't know. Uh, there's probably a million different ways to go about this. I prefer to do free warp. It's a thing in Cubase. It uses Elastic Audio um, as its algorithm, and then it's got its own. A user interface built into Cubase to handle it. And that's how I do all of my time alignment for my vocals. Um, I use Autotune for, for tuning. What do you guys use to tune? Autotune. Fairy Audio. Stock Cubase. See, I don't like the built-in Cubase for tuning vocals. To me, it sounds a little bit too... Like a, too much like a keyboard because you're on six point five. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta. I still get that same. That's I still get the same vibe from Melodyne as well. I know a lot of people use Melodyne, but to me, even Melodyne also sounds like a keyboard. I agree. You gotta get off Cubase six point five and move up because I feel like. But see, I don't want to. I know. So at seven, <laughs> seven and eight, I feel like they really they did a whole new deal on that very audio, and it's much better sounding. I I personally love it. I think it's the, the best sounding auto tune, but that's my opinion. Yeah. I also use it every day and I know every single little in and out and minuscule trick or glip that the program has. So definitely, I like just being able to go back and tweak something three months later and not having it rendered into some file that I can't tweak and not lose the take because I overtuned or undertuned a word. Yeah. Yeah. What do you guys think about that technique of, say, when you have doubled vocals, tuning one of them perfectly? and lightly touching the other one? I kind of do it, it's not, I don't do exactly that. What I do is I tune one, the the least amount that can be tuned, just to make it the right part, I guess. Yeah. And then the second one is tuned like, like, okay, like if one was tuned at retune speed 30, then the other one will be tuned at re, retune speed 40. So I'll try and I kind of correct them the same way because I want the part to be um, correct, but I'm letting the the inconsistencies shine through a little bit more on one of them. Yeah, to create a little bit more of a chorus effect. I like mine super okay. tight, like absolutely perfect, both the main take and the double take. But what I do is I don't know how you guys mix or whatever, but I like to run my doubles into the same vocal compressor and vocal chain. So instead of individually compressing each one and then, for example, having your double like minus six dB with its own compressor, I like to take both of them and slam them in. And that kind of gives it that, I would say, 2000s radio rock doubled wetness sound. And that's just kind of it's like the same thing but kind of different but it it's just a different approach i guess and do you think it doubles as something to turn down and just strengthen the main vocal or do you think of them as an equal power type situation or does it depend I'm mostly equal power okay okay well then if you do it equal power i definitely do see why you would want to make them perfect that that makes yeah. total sense my doubles are very background sounding the way i do it i have the main really loud and then the doubles are like where all the ambience and the reverb and the wideness takes place so i guess the moral of the story is that the louder you want your doubles the tighter and in tune they have to be to the original i think it's a genre thing too for example since i do so much radio rock and stuff that's just kind of the sound at least it sounds like it when I listen to back what I'm doing versus what I hear on the radio. Um, that's just the sound I grew up listening to and I expect to hear when I'm hearing a vocal on the radio. So, but when I'm doing metal, I, I do like, for example, I'm familiar with Joey's approach and I think it's pretty cool. I mean, it's, it's good to have them all in the pocket because you can sit down and play with a different, a couple of different setups for vocals and kind of hear which sounds best with each singer because sometimes the doubles like the singer needs the double really loud but sometimes it sounds like crap so you got to bring it back i mean everybody's different yeah it, it, how do you go 
speaking of which, how do you go about giving the vocalist their own mix? I use a hearback unit to where they can dial it to the heart's content, but I've noticed that generally they just like to have a stereo mix on one knob and then their vocals with effects on another and then they're done. But what do you do? That's a good point. Um, I actually never learned how to set up like complex uh, headphone mixes. So I always just hear what the vocalist hears. Like if they want their vocals louder, then I just literally turn the vocals up in the whole song. Like they're hearing what I hear. I'm hearing what they hear. I do it the same. Like I never give them any effects or anything like that. Um, this audio card that I have, the RME cards have a direct zero latency monitoring mode and it doesn't allow you to put effects on it. I mean, I think there's a way around it with like the Cubase control room, but I've just rolled the same way for so long and I'm comfortable with it. And none of my, I mean, I've only had maybe one or two guys ever in my entire career complain like, dude, can I get some verb on the voice? And in that case, I'll switch it. But I kind of just like hearing what's actually coming off the mic. And again, I'm usually in the room with the guy or separated by a single pane of glass within 10 feet of them. So I like the raw interaction and to hear what the singer actually sounds like coming up straight. Because if it sounds great straight off the, the take, when you're listening to it, straight voice, then you know you've got a great take and it's not hidden by... You know, like some guys like the track with pitch correction, for example, in the pop realm. And I'd rather know what I'm getting right away. And if it's going to be a unicorn or if it's going to be bullshit, instead of trying to patch it to sound like a unicorn coming in. I think it can also depend on your your workflow. And mine is to have one track at the top that's set how the vocalist wants to hear himself. And that's where all the takes get recorded. And then I have a bunch of tracks underneath that that have all the different mixing settings that I want to hear like with the EQ, with the reverb, with the delay, kind of like all my vocal effects all in different tracks. And then I just drag each take into the different track that I want it to sound like. Yeah, I do the same. If I want like a vocal take to be distorted, I already have a track down there with distortion on it. And I just drag that take into that, into that track. Yeah, I, I, I do that too, actually. I think that's another good point is being able to hear what it's, you know, aside from being able to hear the raw take, but then being able to hear what it's going to sound like in the, you know, as close as you can to downstream early on. So you know what it's going to sound like if how it takes a distortion, for example, um, it's kind of like pre-mixing. Like, for example, when I track guitars, I already have my drums mixed in the tracking session. So I at least know what kind of kick and snare so I can dial my tone in a little bit better. It's kind of like the same thing to use an analogy. Yeah, well, that's actually why I really like to use a hearback unit, because I like to know what's coming right out of the vocalist's mouth when I'm tracking him. But what he might want is a mix that makes him feel like he's rocking out on stage or or something, or he might need it to sound more mixed. So with the hearback unit, it gives me the option to separate those two worlds so that I can maintain as critical of an ear as I want. You know, for instance, on a different topic, it also helps like with drummers who need to blast their click tracks for, you know, with the hearback unit, they can have it as definitely loud as they want. And I can have it basically muted because I hate listening to uh, click tracks when tracking drums over like Dude, at crazy. I volumes. love, I love vocalists that have in-ears. Yeah. They're great. Aren't they? That's like the best thing ever because then you get zero bleed into your microphone and it's so crisp and clear. Um, headphones, man, like it's always a bitch because people want it to be too loud. They want it louder and louder and then it's coming into the mic and it just ruins everything. Why is every musician deaf? Uh, because they didn't use earplugs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Growing up. I knew the answer, and, but I always wore earplugs. <laughs> that shit don't, that shit don't grow back. Um, yeah, I don't know how to set up a proper headphone mix really either. Like in the traditional sense, every time I've tried to do that with auxes <laughs> and sends and all that, it just starts to turn into a fucking disaster. But with the hearback unit, it's really, really easy because you're just sending outputs to it. And then the musician decides on his own mix. I feel like 
Going back to what you were saying a minute or a few minutes ago about the vibe with a vocalist and not killing it, I feel like you have to get your chain set up, for example, like your compressor dialed in, your cue mix set up, and you have to do that rather quickly because if you don't, sometimes, you know, the vocalist is all warmed up, they're primed and ready to go, and if you're sitting there turning knobs for 25 minutes, you've just killed it, and you haven't even started yet. That kind of makes me think of that sort of scenario. Yeah, sometimes if I have a good amount of time with a vocalist, like a few weeks or something, we'll just take the first day and understand that it's going to be like that so that nobody stresses out and there's no mojo lost or whatever. But yeah, I make sure to always be totally set up and have everything ready to go before we start tracking anything. Because there really is no way to, no faster way to kill a musician's vibe than to just leave them twiddling their thumbs waiting for you. (laughs) And it's awkward to have, you know, the whole band and the singer sitting there looking at you and you're like, hold on a second, guys, let me just sing that one more time for me. I gotta, I gotta fix this. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, do you guys, um, when you guys are tracking vocals, you guys ever kick out the band and just have one-on-one with the singer? Because I'm a huge fan Every of that. Every time. Yes, I absolutely. I kick everyone out of the booth. Yeah, it's difficult people too. people being in the booth. Because <laughs> sometimes you get that control freak guitar player, for example, or bass player that's the, a principal songwriter in the band and they want to sit there because they're like, oh man, I got to make sure I'm here for vocals. This guy's going to screw it up, blah, 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 blah. And then the singer that's in his head, so he's like, get that asshole out of here. And you're like, okay, well, what am I going to do? You know, they, I have two people adamant that it's got to be one way or the other and neither of them are on the same page and that's always like an interesting challenge of a session because you want to accommodate the yeah. singer i mean it's obviously you don't have a choice because if the, the vocal sucks on the record you might as well trash the entire thing yeah and i try not to do any more than like four hours of vocal tracking because then it's a, you're just going past the point of you know diminishing returns you know burnout i think in response to what joel said you also got to find out how the singer feels about that band member and make sure he's not lying to you because sometimes, you know, if you get a pacifist kind of guy, uh, he won't tell you that he would prefer to have the guitar player out of the room. He won't tell you that that guy fucking kills his vibe. So you have to be looking for body language indicators as to ascertain whether or not that guitar player is positive or negative for the thing. But I have actually had a couple of experiences where that one band member was helpful to the vocal process. But I mean, I'm talking one or two times over all the years. In general, I say, get rid of the band, work with the vocalist, be happy, the end, you know? Absolutely. And with that, I'm going to take my pants off. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, but I mean, how, how how do you guys go about getting rid of the band, though, if they are touchy about that? Tell them to get the fuck out, and they're distracting from the session, and they need to leave, and they can come back and have all the opinions they want after the session has happened, or, you know, after we've tracked, or like when we're comping, like if they don't feel like they have enough good takes, for example... But I just throw them out. I'm like, listen, guys, I just want one-on-one. I need to really block... You give them some touchy-feely bullshit... Um, butter up speech. Well, what I was going to say is uh, if if the vocalist wants it, then I pretend to want it. But normally I agree, so it's not very hard to pretend, but like <laughs> if the vocalist like, "Hey, I just want to just I just want it to be me and you only." Then I'll take it upon myself to be like, "Hey guys, I just want it to be me and him only." And then most of the time people respect my decision because I think it's kind of common knowledge that if you're hiring a producer and you want them to do a good job, then you do what they want. The cool thing about being the producer too, is you have that leverage where the vocalist may not want to hurt the guitar player's feelings, but you can come in and be that middleman and be like, you need to get the fuck out of here. And they have to listen to you. So, but they're not going to be bitter about it and pissed. And there's not going to be that inner relationship strife that you're going to be adding to. You can kind of take the fall for the singer and then they'll appreciate that. And that helps build rapport. Yeah. One hopes. <laughs> One hopes. Most of the time, yeah, I should. <laughs> so how long do you guys normally do vocal sessions for? Kind of like you, I try to not go over four hours. Uh, I think that I have had guys over the years who can do monster sessions, but I noticed that for the quality of the vocals, as well as the quality of my own ability to stay current and pay attention and really care. 
somewhere in four hours is great because after a while, you know, just from my perspective alone, not as a vocalist, but just as the dude recording, wearing headphones for that long starts to really hurt. You know, it just, you start to get headaches and all that, especially if I'm recording the vocals in the same room, we're both wearing headphones or he's wearing in-ears and I'm wearing headphones. There's a, you know, there's a limited amount of time where you can do that without going into some sort of a hearing warp. So I'd say two and a half to three to four hours and that's good. And the thing is, a lot of guys say that that's not enough time that because there's a lot of whatever, there's a lot of vocals on the record. And the way that I get around that is to try to start recording vocals as early as possible in the entire recording process. And Joey, I know you do that too. Um, you know, even in as early as the first week of the album, just start getting vocal sessions done and prioritize around the vocalist. I think that's huge. I try to record vocals within the first two days. There you go. You have Boom. to. If you don't pace them out, a lot of vocalists usually like to give that extra 10% in the studio and they don't realize, especially on the aggressive stuff, that you can actually burn out your entire voice and be out for a month or two. And I've had that happen several times where somebody's blown out a vocal box. Same. You got to pace it. Yeah. I've definitely had guys blow themselves out on the first day because they were trying to go too hard and just wanted to go more and more and more. Um, I should have stopped them in retrospect. And now I would. But also now we would have been starting vocals like four days in, five days in or something. Um, So I think that there is, a, I guess, a tradition out there of vocals being the last thing, right? You always hear about, well, we had X amount of time to record the album, whether it's one week or four weeks or two months. And you always hear about... But I had to do all the vocals, like seven songs in one day and two songs the next day. Or like I had to do all my vocals in three days. And that just sucks. That's not going to lead to amazing results. It's going to lead to burnout and really, I guess, just coming short of how good the vocals could actually have been if you paced them out properly and went with the strengths of the vocalist's body. You can hear too when they start to go to shit, like they start getting that hoarseness and then you ask them, you say, hey, how's your voice? How's your throat? Are you feeling good? You're starting to get a little bit of hoarse. Okay, we're done for the day. Yeah, and some people don't know when to quit and that's why I like to just just cap it at four because I also want to keep my sanity as well. And I think think it just makes sense to kind of throw a number out there and just kind of stick to it so that you don't really overdo it stay fresh yeah i mean your your sanity is a huge concern when recording vocals at least at least mine is there's just something about having the headphones on for that long that really uh starts to starts to wear down on me but yeah. the minute i start to hear any hint of the guy losing his you know the fullness of his voice or like, you know, with with screamers, like I start to hear their talking voice come through. Um, you know, whatever the signal is, there's a bunch of them. The moment I hear it, I call the session. And I actually have a vocal drink that um, I've been making for bands for a few years now that seems to work very, very well. I know everybody has their own little herbal remedy for voice you know, like herbal tea this, herbal tea that, but this actually has been working for years and years and years. And every vocalist I've given it to has loved it and says that it really does help their stamina and their recovery. So what you do is go to the grocery store and buy a gallon of apple cider. Now, I don't mean the alcoholic drink. I mean, like, Thanksgiving cider. So just buy a gallon of apple cider, buy a large ginger root, a thing of honey, and a couple lemons. And all you do is boil the cider and put the ginger root in it and 
and the, cut up the lemons, throw them in, dump some of the honey, you know, that's up to you, and just boil it for about 20 minutes. And that's the drink. You know what you should try adding to that or experiment with is adding turmeric because it's one of the most naturally powerful anti-inflammatories. And there's a tea that I drink. For example, I have carpal tunnel in my wrist from drum editing. <laughs> Imagine that. What it is is like I take black peppercorns, whole um, turmeric, ginger root, and cinnamon, and I boil them in water and then make a tea out of it, run everything through a sieve so it's just a liquid, and then drink the liquid, and it's awesome. Turmeric is like the best thing for cracky joints, um, anything that's inflamed in your body. So you might want to experiment with that because it reduces inflammation overall in the body. Okay, so so the shopping list would then be apple cider, ginger, honey, lemon, and then experiment with turmeric, and I'm going to. And that that sounds like it would be a great benefit. I have no idea what it tastes like, but uh, it's the yellow powder. It look, it's like what they make mustard, I believe, out of. It's uh, like an Indian spice. It's yellow. It stains the shit out of everything. But you can also buy a fresh root version of it, which is a little bit smoother. And uh, it, I, it doesn't taste very good by itself, but in conjunction with ginger and cinnamon. And, um, you know, anything else that you mentioned, it's pretty good. Okay. Yeah. It would probably be fine. And I guess the last thing I'll add about that is that the, the vocal drink is meant to be sipped while, uh, while working on vocals or directly after, and it's supposed to be warm. So I'll cook up a giant batch at the beginning of vocals and just have the singer be constantly self-medicating with it. It really helps. Yeah, I have a lot of guys that use the throat coat uh, tea. Yeah, that's a classic. Seems to be seems to work pretty well. I think that the the drink I'm talking about works better than throat coat. That's cool. Yeah, it it uh it we we did some research on throat coat and what goes in it and all that. And throat coat's good. Like it is a classic. But I think that this this vocal drink recipe I, I gave out will will work better for people. They just have to you know, take the time to go to the grocery store, buy the ingredients, and then cook it. That's the, that's that's where the, that's where the toughness comes in because most guys don't want to do that part. Well, it's spe- easier. Yeah. Speaking of endurance and um, vocal burnout, um, I got a kind of an interesting story, and I, which is going to predicate a question. I'm curious how many takes you guys usually do on, for example, like a section, like a half a verse or a line. Because now the guy across the hall who's awesome and he's a good friend of mine, I'm going to give him a little bit of shit here and throw him under the bus, but he's also a producer. <laughs> <laughs> and um, when he does vocals, he'll record like 50 fucking takes of a line. And to me, that's like, holy shit. I mean, I get it. He wants to get it absolutely freaking perfect where it's the absolute best possible representation of that vocal. But I kind of feel like I never usually do more than like three to 10. If the guy really sucks, it's closer to 10. But I try to like be very decisive. And, you know, if he hits it on the second take, I'm going to keep that one. Okay, give me a double. Boom. All right, moving on. I don't want to sit there and you know, go through a very, very long process because you get burned out. If you got to do 50 takes of every line in a song, by the time you get to the chorus, your voice is going to sound like you're talking with chalk covering it. Well, he literally does 50 takes. Yeah. Something ridiculous like that. Dude, he'll be sitting there doing a gang vocal and it'll be like three o'clock and I'll walk out in the lounge and I'll go back and I'll come back a half hour later and they're still on the same fucking line. And I'm like, what is going on over there? (laughs) I usually will do... I'll tell the vocalist to focus on something like, hey, try to make your E more sound more like an A and then have them like do a take. And then I'll say, okay, now, you know, focus on getting this ST, you know, just right like this and then do a take and then I'll comp it. So I'll try to, instead of trying to get them to do all 10 things that I want them to do in, you know, in one magical take, I'll just tell them to do that thing and they usually will do it but they'll mess something else up in the line and then I'll go back in and comp it all together cut it all up and make like one Frankenstein line out of all the different takes that they have I'm totally with you on that yeah I think that's much better than just arbitrarily recording a million takes to then go through afterwards for some reason Uh, yeah you need a reason for each take absolutely yeah yeah, they're not just going to magically get better. I, I feel like a lot of people tend to 
go for too many takes on the assumption that 99 takes of shit, but on the 100th, it's going to magically become great. And I just haven't really experienced things working yeah. that way. If you're not getting it on take three to five, you're it's just not clicking. So you need to do something different. And I've had uh, I've been fortunate to work with some people who understand their voice really well, and so I can hear them actually like using different parts of their throat to try to get it to come out better. But sometimes it's really hard if someone doesn't know how to do that. It's hard to tell them. Well, try using a different part of your throat, and they'll be like, "Well, what do you mean? I don't know how to do that." So. Sometimes you just have to break it down into little things. Like, I don't really like how you're hitting this vowel here. Try warping that vowel to a little bit of a different sound like this. And then, you know, nine times out of ten, they'll do that one thing that you said, but they'll mess everything else up. So just comp it. Totally. Yeah, I, I think that... I think that's a great way to do it. I feel like every singer or screamer too, especially screamers, should go watch screaming tutorials. For example, the Zen of Screaming by Melissa Cross um, is fantastic. And usually, when I get a screamer who doesn't have a lot of stamina or they, you know, they're very throaty, they'll be like, "Go watch this DVD and come back in a week and train it." And they'll come back and it'll be night and day. I, I, I let me just say that I've had nightmares with that scenario though, where. A guy comes in with no training, and I give him Zen of Screaming, and then he does it wrong. <laughs> and <laughs> Thankfully, that's problem. never happened to me, but that terrifies me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like doing the Zen of Screaming wrong is probably even worse. But <laughs> let me, doing the Zen of Screaming wrong, if you already have no technique, is probably worse than not doing it at all. I've come to notice. I did have one guy who then went and tried the full DVD and practiced it for about eight hours and totally destroyed his voice. Holy shit. But, that, but I mean, that was his own damn fault, honestly. <laughs> okay, we'll preclude that statement with a forewarning <laughs> disclosure. Don't, yeah, don't be an idiot. <laughs> I think that applies to everything. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> we could sum up yeah. this entire podcast in one sentence. Don't be an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I definitely agree with you on Zena screaming, though. And the vocalists that I've worked with, the screamers who have been using Melissa Cross's work uh, as a guide over you know a period of years or many months, they always do a better job than the guys who don't. Like they just have better stamina, better control. They're just easier to work with. They're just much. Yep. Their voice is just much more of a defined instrument. Like that stuff really works. Yeah, I can echo that experience as well. I just did pre pro and co writing with Miss May I on their fifth album. And we were doing vocals pretty much every day because um, we were writing the songs, you know, trying different vocal patterns and stuff. And uh, Levi and Ryan, I'm pretty sure both have worked with Melissa Cross extensively. And Levi says that uh, he really, he he seems to think that the reason why he is even still here today is because of Melissa. I believe it. My Absolutely. band, when when my band switched vocalists, one of the things that we had to do with our new vocalist was send him to Melissa Cross to kind of help get him up to speed. So he went and did like two and a half days with her in person at her studio in New York. And he had already been doing Zen of Screaming for a couple of years. So he went there already knowing her stuff. So he became kind of like a master student to where she could really go deeper with him. Yeah. And man, I tell you, this guy could go on tour and play 35 shows in 37 days without even complaining about his voice once. That's amazing. We could be recording for the album and do 10-hour vocal days, 30 days in a row, without him losing his voice at all. Still perfect technique, perfect delivery, and I'm not exaggerating. Like, he took the Melissa Cross stuff, like, religiously, I had to say. He did it every single day and was just a maniac about it. But I've never really... I've never really seen anyone else with that kind of just stamina and control besides him. Uh, I just I just really think that the 
Melissa Cross stuff, if you do it right, is a huge, huge benefit to anyone who uses it. I've had one guy like that. That was Travis Neal from The Bloodline on Another Century. Travis is like, you'll start screaming, and I usually start my sessions early, and we'll sit there, go eight hours, and his tone will not have faltered at four o'clock in the afternoon. He sounds just as good as nine in the morning. So it's just like, we kind of sit there, me and my assistant, and we're just like, holy shit, this is great. Why can't all screamers be this good? When you get a unicorn like that, that actually has that kind of endurance, it's just really inspiring because they take what they're doing so seriously and so few singers do. Yeah, well, the thing is about these unicorns, though, is that, at least in my experience, the unicorn vocalists I've recorded who have that sort of endless stamina or, you know, whatever greatness you want to attribute to them, they all take their vocals very, very seriously. They take their health seriously. They take their warm-ups very seriously. And, they, you know, they're not messing around. It's, these guys don't just drink fifths of whiskey, smoke packs of cigarettes, don't warm up, and then suddenly come record eight hours a day. It, that doesn't work that way. These you don't guys, like the whiskey vocals? <laughs> no. Hey, that shit's rock and roll, man. <laughs> I th- actually think that whiskey can help at times, but I just mean as far as long, you know, marathon sessions and overall stamina, I've just noticed that lots of the better vocalists do treat themselves as if they're athletes, at least to some, to some degree. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've, I've seen the same thing. Um, yeah. Usually the ones that are really good are, are very conditioned and, and definitely practice and do warm ups and, I'd have to say one of the best vocalists I've ever worked with was Lights. Um, she just kills it. She has perfect pitch, and she knows she understands her voice and stuff, and takes it really seriously, like a professional. It, it makes a huge difference. Um, the same same thing. Dude from Monuments is an amazing, amazing vocalist. And you know what's funny about him? The reason I want to bring him up is because there was a time period where he wasn't that amazing. He used to be in Periphery, and if you listen to recordings from when he was in that band, he didn't sound too good. And they booted him, and I guess he took it upon himself to get better. But he's in with Melissa Cross as well, and he started really just making his vocals his priority. And by practicing warm-ups and exercises for like 90 minutes a day and drinking two gallons of water and just doing everything absolutely right. And so then recording vocals with him ended up being just an extension of that. Uh, Super well-trained, took total care of himself, and it was just a pleasure to record. It's not, you know, it's not an accident that that it went that well. Here's a fun one for you guys. Did you guys ever get Back in, I mean, I haven't had one of these in a long time, but you ever get one of those guys that comes in and cups the mic and like has no power, just kind of like gurgles into the mic and you're like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. (laughs) I've kicked people out of my studio for doing that. Yeah, I've had that happen here and there. Not too much lately, though. That was always more of like a when I recorded local bands kind of thing. I mean, sometimes some kids would come in and it'd be like, what are you doing? You're not even screaming. Like, I can whisper louder than you scream, dude. Like, you don't cup the mic. Like, why? Where did you get this idea from? Yeah, I've I've made bands fire their vocalists. And sometimes it ended up in the band breaking up, which I felt really bad about. But at the same time, is one of those things where the vocalist is so bad, just so outrageously bad, just beyond salvation bad, just worst shit you can ever possibly fucking imagine coming <laughs> out of this idiot's mouth with the worst lyrics on earth, and he's an asshole. It's just like they're paying me to do a good job for them and get them to the next level and all that, and... There's just no I way. know full well that it is not going to happen with this guy. Like, it won't happen. There's a reason for why uh, session vocalists used to come in in the older days. There's a reason for why big-time producers 
wouldn't work with certain vocalists. And there's a reason for why some local bands never make it. And it's because of shitty fucking vocalists. But <laughs> so, yeah, I've taken that gamble a few times in really extreme circumstance to try to get a band to just replace their vocalist. And a couple times the bands have broken up, but a couple times or more the bands have done that and gone on to better things. So it's a weird, weird gamble to take. I've done the same thing, man. Sometimes you just have to be the voice of reason. Say, hey, guys, I know this guy's in your band for some reason, but I don't think those reasons are going to outweigh the fact that this is just garbage. <laughs> I got another fun one. <laughs> so what What about the tone deaf singer? Joey, um, I'm not going to say the name of the band, but we had both worked on a band. Like You did the one record for them, and I did the one after. And uh, we had worked on this one band, let's just say... In sequence, there were three songs on this record that Joey had done and the rest I had produced. And this is maybe four or five years ago. And the vocalist was literally tone deaf. Like, you'd be like, hit that note and he would shoot it up by three steps. Then sway. you'd be like, what the fuck was that? Just hit the note. And he'd be like, it's what he sounded like a dying frog. And I was just sitting there looking at the band. I'm like, guys, I don't know what the fuck or how the fuck, but this is bullshit. Like, this isn't going to work. You guys are signed. Like, this isn't, this is, this is bad. So we just Franken-taked together a working performance out of it. And it's, he sounds great on the record. Like, his tone was good, but he's absolutely tone deaf. And it was just the worst experience I think I've ever had recording vocals because I can only imagine what kids seeing it live. How did you deal with that, Joey? Do you know who I'm talking about without saying the name? I don't know who you're talking about right now. Um, I think I know who you're talking about. So I'll just talk about that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The way I dealt with it was probably a little bit, uh, I don't know, maybe it was the wrong way of going about it, but... At the time, I just didn't have any solutions, so I just like kind of just recorded whatever he would do, and then later on, I removed my name from the project. So, <laughs> <laughs> I, I've had this experience with like a few people. You know, if we want to talk about dudes that are pro instead of just a shitty local singer, I've recorded a couple guys who tend to have a hard time staying in bands and just kind of bounce around where they think they're this big, awesome, melodic vocalist, but a bunch of stuff, like say there's a seven note passage and the first note is in the right key and the last note's in the right key and they're the same note. But uh, everything else in between is like a half step off of where it needs to be. And the guy just cannot tell that he's clashing so hard with the music. Like, no matter what I say or what I do or what I show him, dude can just not hear it. It just does not connect. I've definitely seen and experienced some dudes in pro bands that are that are tone deaf. Like, they, they can't hear that they're singing a half step out. It's a, it blows my mind. You almost have to like auto tune it and be like, here, sing along. This is what it's supposed to sound like. Oh, I'm singing it that way. No, you're not, idiot. You're singing it like this. But I do that stuff. They still can't hear the difference. (laughs) I don't get it. I think tone deaf and colorblind are the same thing. Even though I haven't seen any scientific fact to back me up, I have a theory that tone deaf is to music what colorblind is to um, is to colors because there are some people who no matter what you show them or play them or whatever, they cannot hear the difference between two half steps. It's like trying to say, can't you see this green apple against this background? And they don't see anything. And so it's right there. So they can't see it. They're fucking colorblind. Give them a break. I think tone deaf is uh, a very similar thing. It's just weird. It's just not yeah, exactly something that you would expect from a frontman in a in a popular band or something. It's like yeah, you have one job. A cop that doesn't know how to drive or something. Well, if I write vocals with a band, I always have a guide track that shows the vocalist exactly what melody to sing. Yeah, that well, that's my point. If they can't, if they have that guide track and they can't. And they still can't tell then that they're, they're off. Tone deaf. Then they're tone deaf. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you have one job, and that's to sing, and that's it, and look cool on stage. 
So if you can't do that, why are you even in a band trying to be a vocalist? Yeah, it doesn't but, make sense. But I, I I maintain that they probably can't tell that they can't do that because yeah, yeah. you're right. Ah, yeah. Uh, yeah, the delusion. Yeah, I, th- I just think that they think that they're okay, and the reason I think this is because usually these guys are just oblivious to how bad this shit sounds, and. You know how perfect pitch works? Like, where if you have perfect pitch, you can tell immediately if something is just slightly off and it just bugs you. So there's got to be the other end of the spectrum, too, which is where I feel like these guys, I feel like these guys inhabit the opposite of perfect pitch. Um, So they just can't tell. It's got to be that because nobody in their right mind who hears this garbage will sit there and be like, yeah, I sound great. No, it can't be that. It's got to be that, they're, that it's, their brain is not perceiving it. There's certain types of things like being in the wrong key or singing a half step out or being slightly out of tune that the human brain perceives it like instinctually and it bothers us. Uh, so I just think these people are missing that just blows my mind it's like having a blind pilot or something like yeah those are like the worst session days absolutely yeah. terrible <laughs> so i say if you're encountering someone like that then uh you know deal de- run yeah <laughs> get out you can't run. always it's weird really weird i was gonna say um if you guys have any other questions about vocals you know vocal tracking vocal editing vocal mixing you should definitely check out the uh what are we calling it the producers private the private producers club it's on facebook i'm sure we can uh throw out a link on the website somewhere if you're a subscriber go in there and just ask us questions and maybe we can find enough topics to put on another episode about this and uh otherwise you know we'll just try and answer your questions in the future But uh, thanks for tuning in and listening to the Joey Sturgis Forum podcast. And with that, see you later. Thanks, guys. Thank you. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Creative Live, the world's best online classroom for creative professionals with classes on songwriting, engineering, mixing, and mastering. Go to creativelive.com slash audio to start learning now. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is also brought to you by Savior Custom Drums, quality crafted drums, handmade in Denver, Colorado. Go to saviorcustomdrums.com to start building your custom drum collection now. To ask us questions, suggest topics, and interact, visit urmacademy.com and subscribe today.